0: Turn to Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, titled this one, Don't Bother Knocking. Of course, if the door is open, do you need to knock? It's when the door is closed that you would need to knock. knock. There is a door open. Also, um, normally I stand at the back door to shake hands today, I'm going to stay at the front If you're new, if you've been visiting for a while and we haven't gotten a chance to say hi uh, or to meet or greet one another, uh, I will be here. would love to meet you if you're a new visitor. Scripture reading, our passage for study today, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. And Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching, and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord... Are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west and from the north and south and will recline at the table in the, in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The word of the Lord. Well, since we've been studying Luke and, and thinking back to chapter 9, especially the f- verse 51 of chapter 9, We've been observing Jesus. He has been making His pathway to Jerusalem, His journey. And and that started back in Galilee. He was ministering up there for some months, we know. Uh, That is where the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. It's where Jesus had many disciples, but because of the hard teaching after the feeding of the 5,000, we learn in the Gospel of John chapter 6, because of the hard teaching, many quit following Him. That exodus of disciples had been so great that Jesus turns to the twelve and He said, you do, not, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And now making His way throughout Judea, that region surrounding Jerusalem, He continues to draw sizable crowds wherever He goes to preach and teach and heal, yet Jesus just keeps on turning up the heat, turning up the heat more and more. I believe we discussed this thoroughly enough, but just in case you've maybe been absent or missed or it's your first time, we need to note that as the sacrifice that Jesus demands increases, relatively few remain with him. And by the book of Acts, that that book that takes uh, place immediately after the resurrection resurrection and Christ's ascension, by the book of Acts, only about 120 followers remain in the city of Jerusalem. Only 120. Not a huge following, following for the greatest preacher and teacher and healer the world had ever seen. Folks, tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of people had heard Jesus preach. Thousands had been healed of every type of disease, every kind of disease imaginable. Only a handful commits their lives to following Christ. This astonishing reality is further illustrated in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus heals ten lepers who are crying out to him, Jesus! Master, have mercy on us! But after healing all, all ten, only one, and we, we learn in the passage a Samaritan, only one returns to thank Jesus. So Jesus says to him, the Samaritan, he goes, Were not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this this foreigner? Ten had been healed, one returned, and that one was a foreigner, a Samaritan. A picture again, as we're going to look at today, a picture of the rejection of Jesus by the Jews and then the inclusion of outsiders. The inclusion of Gentiles. In our passage today, Luke chapter 13, verse 23, th- this repeated pattern that we see of superficial commitment, it prompts one person following him. We don't know who it is, but it prompts one person to ask, Lord, are, are there just a few being saved? Well, That's a good question. A really good question. in the nature of, Of such a question really ought to make us ask, saved from what? Saved from what? What is it that seemingly only a few are being saved from? And that answer is essential. It is essential because it speaks to the very nature of human salvation. Salvation of souls. So we need to get this answer right. What is it that we need to be concerned about? What do we need to be saved from? Because as you listen to much teaching, much preaching, reading many books today, um, we might quickly conclude that that what we need to be saved from is unfulfillment. Dissatisfaction in this life. Quote, unquote, Christian television. It, It might have left you with the idea that salvation involves being saved from a plummeting career, bad financial investments, and that salvation transforms and transfers you into Christ's kingdom of prosperity. How often do we hear that today? Still others suggest that we must be saved from a poor self-image, a low self-esteem. And the symptoms of such a theology, a bad theology that it is, it's similar to in Jesus' day. Very similar to Jesus' day. Superficial followers who, who after their temporal condition, after their immediate need is met, then they forget all about Jesus until the next time they have a need. But nothing in between. Such a notion, it's resulted in an easy believism. An easy believism that Jesus never taught. You find it everywhere today, pastors asserting and reasserting that the reason Jesus came is to make all of your life's problems go away. According to that, how many of us would be saved? Anybody out there got any problems? I know I do. They proclaim a Jesus who serves you. And the result has been a very easy a very broad road to being saved. And with greater and, and, greater, and greater intensity, uh, we find secret churches asserting, you know, let, let's just make it as easy as possible. As easy as possible for people to behave Christian or become Christian. Let's make it as easy as possible for people to follow Jesus. No denial of self, no denial of the lusts of the world, no cross to bear on their back, and their are large, lighted, flashing signs directing people to a road of being saved that looks nothing like Jesus ever taught. Call it easy street. Easy street to salvation. John MacArthur correctly comments on this saying that Christ's invitation was radically different from those commonly used today. His message was not that God loves everyone unconditionally and desires to connect with sinners and fulfill all of their personal dreams and ambitions. Nor was Jesus' goal to manipulate people into making a shallow commitment to Him. Jesus' words are sobering, threatening, and frightening enough to produce panic in the heart of of a penitent, thoughtful soul. He goes also on to say they also serve as a, uh, as to banish half-hearted seekers who are unwilling to surrender themselves to the lordship of Christ. The dividing line. Jesus' words were a division. And from what we've observed together intently uh, and repeatedly over the last four chapters of Luke. The road to salvation is it's just much narrower than that. It's narrower. Identifying yourself as a follower of Christ. It requires repentance from sins, a commitment, a heart, at least for evangelism, abandonment of materialism, a selling of possessions and a concern for the poor requires a trusting solely in him. That sound hard? Sounds a little hard. And this is just a sample, folks. Just a sample of the many requirements that drove off all of the superficial followers of Christ. Uncommitted followers. The door of salvation that Jesus pointed to is a very narrow door through which few people enter. Few will enter. You might be surprised to learn that Jesus' narrow door The narrow door to salvation, it contrasted with what was commonly taught in Israel at that time. The common teaching was that all Jews, except for the very worst, perhaps tax collectors and and really profane sinners, notorious sinners, everyone else would be saved. Just the worst would be lost. And due to their status as descendants of Abraham, Father Abraham, the, the father of faith, uh, due to their status as descendants of his, most took entertain, uh, entering the kingdom for granted. They assumed they would enter the kingdom. God's promises to Abraham, they believed ensured a broad road to salvation for Israel. So the only thing that they worried about was their taking care of their temporal problems, their temporal conditions, until the kingdom of God would finally arrive. They were living for today, not for the kingdom. Well, their broad road theology, it made it challenging for those who were listening to Jesus preach this, this narrow road. They were used to this broad road for Jews. Now Jesus is teaching them a narrow road But does it sound familiar, this broad road to salvation? Because we hear much of the same thing today. God loves you just as you are, exactly as you are. There's no need to deny yourself, forsake sin, sacrifice your lifestyle, or adjust your lifestyle. Jesus came so as to make your trip to Heaven as comfortable and pleasurable as possible, you might determine listening today. Um, so, so just don't worry. Just don't worry, anyone. Sit back, relax. We'll all eventually get there. Except maybe Hitler and another few notorious sinners. They, they might not, but all the rest of us, we're all eventually going to get there that is the predominant attitude today in America. We'll all eventually get there. And the road is depicted as being so wide, so wide that people never seriously commit to following Christ. It's so wide. Just raise your hand. Say a little prayer. Get baptized. Something simple. Let's make it as easy as possible for people to become followers of Christ. And you do one of these little things and you'll never have to worry about anything else going forward. And the result has been people self-identifying as Christians, calling themselves Christians, who remain willfully sinning, remain in their previous style uh, lifestyle completely unchanged, no transformation in Christ, Concerned only with how to supposedly improve their temporal living conditions. Health, wealth, prosperity. Supposedly my new relationship with Jesus will take care of all of that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Is this the salvation that Jesus taught? Is this what he taught? Well, let's look. Let's look. In verse 24. Luke chapter 13. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Rather than a door that is wide, that makes it easy for salvation, Jesus urges us to find a door that is narrow. Not only a narrow door, but One that we have to strive to enter through. On a different occasion, this would be his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. uh, But with similar words, Jesus said this. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And then warning of false prophets in the same chapter, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You doers of lawlessness. Hmm. If you've been with us, you know here at the Gospel of Luke, going through the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus has been describing the kingdom of God. We saw that last week. It's like a mustard seed, right? He's given us a description. It's like leaven describing the kingdom of God. Um, In this passage now today, Jesus is describing the entrance into that kingdom. The entrance to the kingdom of God. And he says it's very narrow. Very narrow. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, says Jesus. And few enter through it. Few find it. To the question poised in our passage, Lord, are only a few being saved? The answer is yes compared to the number who are being lost. Few are being saved. Only a few. So it should not take us by surprise, really, that this design of only a few being saved isn't new to the Bible. It isn't foreign to the Bible at all. Instead, it's actually the standard most often seen in the Bible. During the time of Noah, You know, it's estimated at that time that there were millions of people who had already populated the earth. Millions had already populated the earth. Genesis 6 verse 5 tells us that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart were evil uh, all of the time. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Bloodshed. Murder. And in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the apostle Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. We know him as an ark builder. He was also a preacher of righteousness. Did you know that? So Noah not only obeyed God through building an ark, but while he was doing so, he was preaching to the people around him God's righteousness. And that judgment was coming in the form of a flood. He didn't keep it secret. Noah was a preacher. He told others about the flood of judgment. And although the people, people thought Noah was crazy, though they thought he was crazy, do you remember what was built into the side of that ark? What was built on a side? I heard it over here. A door. There was a door on the side of the ark. A door of God's grace built into the side of the ark. One wide enough where two animals of any kind could pass through it, a door. And people were able to watch as Noah and the animals entered two by two. They were able to watch that. Witnessing miracles, by the way, doesn't save you. And and on that very same day, we are told in Genesis chapter 7, the very same day, The judgment came, it came after God had closed the door. How many people entered? Do you remember? Noah and seven others. Why didn't anyone else enter? It's because they did not believe that judgment would come. They did not believe that God would judge unrighteousness. They didn't believe it. Then it began to rain. Then it began to rain. And as the waters began to climb, the depth of the waters climbed, and they had never seen it rain before at that time. It was irrigated from the ground, is what we know. It began to rain. Do you think they started knocking on that door? Do you think reality started to set in, that there's actual judgment coming upon sin? But God had already closed the door. And it was too late. Only a few were being saved. The same can be seen with Lot and his daughters. Uh, Only three were ultimately rescued from Sodom. Surrounding cities, large populations, only three. The preaching of Isaiah, as Pastor Weiler was teaching last Sunday morning in the Bible Life Group. The preaching of Isaiah, the greatest greatest prophet of his time, great among the prophets, his preaching was only received by a remnant. Only a few. And in First Kings 19, verse 10, in the day of Elijah, faith was so rare in Israel that he was convinced he was left alone. He wasn't. There was still a remnant in Israel, God told him. But he had seen so little faith, he was convinced that he alone was left. And then, of course, there's a prophet, Jeremiah, another great prophet, preached for 40 years in Israel, never saw one convert. Called him the weeping prophet. Hmm. Folks, the door to salvation, the door of salvation, it's always been narrow. It's always been narrow. But at least there's a door. There is a door, and for a little while longer, at least for today, we know the door to that kingdom, to the door to God's kingdom, it's open. The door is open, folks. But it ain't that easy to enter. You can't just lollygag in, is what I'm saying. Lackadaisically. Honestly, some believe that they're just going to lollygag in. Jesus says we have to strive. We have to strive to enter the kingdom. Uh, The Greek word there is agonizomai. It it means to exert much effort, to, to struggle, to fight, even to the point of agony. The related term, agonia, it's used to describe Jesus as he sweat droplets of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. Agonizing agonizing. So uh, agonizomai describes exerting much effort. It's even been translated laboring earnestly when describing the ministry of Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4. Jesus declares that we must labor earnestly in order to pass through the door. Hang with me. Unfortunately, being called to labor or to labor earnestly, that almost sounds heretical to us. Oh, no, stop there. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Yes, we are. Seems like heresy. That is, until we recognize that over the last several chapters as we've studied Luke, that Jesus has been teaching us that one characteristic of of genuine, saving faith. The real McCoy. The real deal. One characteristic is that a person of faith in Christ, they labor earnestly. They labor earnestly. We agonize for the kingdom. We labor for the kingdom. We, we struggle. We, we fight for the kingdom. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Do you think he said that because it's easy? It's not easy. Folks striving and fighting to enter the kingdom and keeping the faith, that's not what's heretical. It is easy believism, which suggests a person merely needs a one-time emotional response, Or a recital of a prayer once back many years ago. Or getting baptized when I was a baby or an adult. The idea that that this is all it takes to enter the kingdom. And then you can go on your merry way and live your life as you always had. Folks, that is what is heretical. That is a lie. A person who is a new creation in Christ Jesus cannot go back to living the life they once had. Had true conversion to Christ involves repentance from sin with with a passionate devotion to Christ including a lifetime of striving a lifetime of striving into intensive care if need be striving saving faith involves denying self parting with treasures of the earth abandoning worldly lusts even separation from family if need be that's what Jesus said even to a point of willingly suffering persecution for the holy name of Christ. That's what the early church did. This is why Peter does not hesitate to announce in 1 Peter 4, verse 18, It is with great difficulty that the righteous is saved. Hmm. Commitment. Perseverance. Fighting the good fight. Keeping the faith. Clearly scripture assures we are saved by faith alone as we place our trust in Christ who died paying the full penalty of our sins on the cross. We can't earn salvation. Ephesians two eight and 9. For by grace ye are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no man may boast. Surely our spiritual rebirth Being a new creation. It's credited solely to God. God the Holy Spirit who regenerates our hearts, making us alive to God. But our new life in Christ results in a lifetime of striving. Even to the point of agony. Do You agonize it all over the kingdom. Any agony... Noah was a man saved by faith. That faith caused him to invest decades of his life building an ark. Earnestly building an ark. Undoubtedly agonizing in the face of much opposition to him and his ark. From people around a wicked world. A life he had striving against sin, striving in service, striving in worship to God, striving against everything ungodly, fighting against it. That's a supernatural evidence of a Christian. That's evidence of a Christian. It involves a whole lot of work, folks. A whole lot of work. Striving enters through the narrow door. The wide door, that was taken by the nine lepers. Remember them earlier on in our story, the nine lepers. They turned their back and walked away from Christ. Convinced that their temporal condition, that's all they needed to be saved from. My leprosy. Now that that's fixed, got nothing more to worry about. But being saved from temporal conditions today, it's not the biblical description of salvation. That's not what we're being saved from the temporal conditions of today. Most Christians are never healed. Few become wealthy. Many Christians across the globe are never spared intense suffering in this lifetime. The apostles weren't spared intense suffering in their lifetime. Why would we think that we would? What salvation saves us from, folks, is a flood of God's judgment that is coming. A flood of judgment coming upon a wicked and corrupt and sinful world. Don't think we're wicked and corrupt, just look at the news. God's wrath, folks, is what we need to be saved from. A narrow door to be saved through faith in Christ remains open today. That door is open. Jesus says, strive to enter. Strive to enter. For once God closes the door, as he did with Noah, there aren't going to be any second chances. Scripture says it's allotted for man to die once, and then judgment. Look at verse 24, Luke 13. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter, and will not be able once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying lord open up to us then he will answer and say to you i do not know where you are from hmm what a sad sad horrifying thought clearly this doesn't describe people knocking to enter on a closed door today that's not what it's describing Rather, it describes those people who don't care about entering today. They don't really care. It also describes people of that same class who didn't want to enter in Jesus' day. They didn't care either. Instead, this passage is describing people who want to enter on the Judgment Day. They want to wait. That day after the door has already been closed... That day of judgment, Jesus told us in the last chapter, Luke chapter 12, that day will come like a thief. he will come out of nowhere. And suddenly people are going to find themselves locked out when the flood begins to come. In verse 26, Jesus says, In that day, then you will begin to say, We, oh, we, we ate and drank, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. And, and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Now, in that day, in that day, they finally want to have a relationship with Christ. <laughs> they say, you, know, you don't remember us? We, we ate together. We, we drank together. We hung out. You know, we were, we were in the crowd that time ye, that you taught by the sea. Remember that, Jesus? We were there. We, we heard you. I don't doubt there are going to be people outside knocking who had sat down to eat at the banquet thrown in Jesus' honor by Levi. There will surely be many knocking who ate of the loaves and of the fish that Christ gave them because they walked away. There will no doubt be many outside knocking who sat and listened to Jesus preach as He preached the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, how sad is that going to be? The greatest, arguably the greatest sermon ever given by Jesus. Certainly better than anything you're hearing here. Amen? Outside, there well, will no doubt be many who attended church now and then. Been christened, been baptized, recited a prayer at one time or another, professing a sur- superficial commitment, a superficial faith that resulted in no striving for the kingdom. Nothing came out of it. One time event, nothing came out of it. And what will be Jesus' reply on that day? I'll say, Don't bother knocking. The door's closed. It was open. You were there, it was open. Now it's closed. The door to salvation is closed. In verse 27, we're told, He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a a horrific scene of desperation. Very sad for us to read this. Um... Enduring God's wrath for sins when you you could have trusted in Christ who died for them on the cross. How sad. God's wrath on sins. That's bad enough. Here it also describes a lament over that lost opportunity. You missed it. The door, the door was open, and you casually, you casually walked by. You, you just walked by. What a complete and utter tragedy. You missed the door because, well, something else must have caught your attention. A much wider door, one with, with big, bold print, a sign saying, Enter here for heaven. A wide door, a broad door, and, and you saw many people entering through that door. And you noticed, well, this is what was the best part, you noticed, you know, they were able to pass through really easily. Didn't have to strive at all to get through that door. Minimal effort to get through that door. And you know, you know some people consider themselves Christian. God observes the heart, measures the heart of every man. But some consider themselves Christian, but the maximum effort that they want to exert is standing in line at Legoland. No kidding, folks. No, I like Legoland. Trust me, I want to go to Legoland. Those are great toys. I was weaned, by the way, on Legos and Egos. You know what I'm talking about? And I'd love to see Legoland. Hopefully, Rita and I will be able to make there eventually. We're thinking about taking a cruise this summer. are not sure yet, but we're going to get away and relax and enjoy it. But you know what? Vacation and relaxing is not something I'm going to agonize over. That's not something I'm going to pour all my effort over and fight for. But some do. And the notion that, that Christ saved us so that we can just continually be entertained. Until that he returns, that is a false view of spiritual regeneration. It is. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, but if you don't get that, your salvation gauge might not be calibrated right. Your needle might not be on true north. Your compass might be off if you don't quite get that. And I'm sorry if That offends anyone. I know it's hard. But striving is Jesus' idea. It's not mine. I didn't come up with this. And Jesus seems to take no initiative into offering a false assurance to anyone who's unsaved. He's not giving any false assurance to someone who won't strive. The Lord's brother James assures us that saving faith does not hinge only on what you know. It's also what you show. Striving. Strive to enter through the narrow door. People who refuse or perhaps even just neglect to strive. Just neglect to strive. They're not going to enter the kingdom. All they're going to receive is a glimpse of the kingdom through a window. Verse 29 No wait, 28. We're still in verse 28. They're going to see the patriarchs. They're going to see Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all the prophets there as they get a glimpse of the kingdom. Referring to their status in eternal condemnation, that is hell, Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourself being thrown out. An amazing picture of eternity. This is tough. I'd like to just end here. A common question that I'm asked is if we're going to be able to recognize one another in heaven. Absolutely. And We will. Even these people who never met or saw Abraham, Isaac or the prophet's, They're going to recognize who they are. It's not that we become omniscient. That's an attribute of God. We don't, when we get to heaven, know everything going on. That that is an attribute of God, not of man. We're going to know who people are, just as we know who people are here. Probably with a little better memory, because I forget some of your names sometimes. But there's been passed around a false idea, a false notion, that in heaven our minds will be some way scrubbed you know, that that we don't remember our previous lives on earth or people who we knew. That's completely inaccurate. Completely inaccurate. What would be the point if people in hell couldn't remember what they did or who they did it with or recognize why they're in hell? What would be the point for people who are saved to worship Jesus for eternity if they didn't remember the extent of the sin that they were saved from? What would be the point? Comparatively, for believers, our celebration and our worship of Christ in heaven, that will be intensified by remembering how awful we were. So how awful we were before we were called to God's grace. Of course we'll remember our lives previous to conversion. How we turned from sin in order to serve a living God. We'll know that big change that Jesus made in our lives when we accepted Him as Savior and His Holy Spirit came into our lives and changed us. We'll remember that. We'll remember how we served together in the church. We'll remember how we served one another. We'll remember the missions trips that we took and we shared the gospel with people. We'll remember the people that we witnessed to. We're going to remember. That'll be the basis of our reward in heaven As we worship Christ for eternity, for what He saved us from. Meanwhile, those who are not in heaven, they're going to be locked out of the kingdom. And they will see all the rest of us entering the kingdom. Now we're in verse 29. Folks, this is where you and I come into the picture. Where you and I come in right now. We will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and will recline at the table... In the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Hmm. Jesus' statement is, is pointed at the Jews who were rejecting him. Who took for granted they would be the ones who were dining with the patriarchs. But in actuality, they'll be watching believing Jews and believing Gentiles reclining at the table in the kingdom. What a day. One more quote from MacArthur. I don't like to quote from one same guy more than once, but this was just good. He says, The torment of hell will not be limited to the pain of punishment, but will include the remorse, shock, and surprise of those who ended up there, uh, despite thinking they were going to heaven. The more people in hell knew about the gospel, the more profound their remorse will be, their pain will be, in proportion to their level of rejection of Christ. That's consistent with what the Bible has been teaching us. We learned that back in chapter 12, verses 46 to 48. God is so perfectly righteous, so just, that the suffering in hell will be proportional both to the level of offense, the sins that we committed, those who are there, not us, because we believed in Christ, and according to the knowledge about Christ, which people rejected. just said we don't want them. Meanwhile, those of us who have entered will be eternally grateful when we see exactly what we have been saved from. This is hard. This is, today I'm glad that we dismiss children, um, the youngest ones to children's church. But just as the account of the rich man and Lazarus, remember the story? Not only will the damned get a glimpse of the glorious kingdom of God, but we who are saved will be reminded with a glimpse of what we were saved from. It isn't particularly pleasant. It's God's word, so I'll show it to you. In the closing chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, we find a picture of worship in the eternal state. When everything has been made new, you'll notice the new heavens and new earth are initiated, accompanied by the worship of all redeemed Mankind, redeemed mankind, not all mankind. Isaiah writes, I'll give you a minute to get there, I hear some pages turning. Isaiah the prophet writes, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure and it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind. Again, that is, redeeming, uh, that is referring to all the redeemed from every tongue and tribe. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. This describes the experience of people who did not enter through the narrow door. In Matthew 9, Jesus himself cites this passage, Isaiah 66, for describing hell. A scene recorded also in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and it is a warning of the penalty for rejecting God and the eternal suffering by fire that will never be quenched. Uh, heaven and hell are both eternal, folks. Uh, there, there is no concept in the Bible of annihilation or when people who aren't redeemed die that, that they will just cease to exist. No. That, that's not taught in the Bible. That's false doctrine. And, and I hope this scene from Isaiah 66 scares everybody into the arms of Christ. I really do. I really do. Because judgment is coming. Um, People say, I've heard it said before, you can't scare people into the kingdom. Jesus tried. He tried. And although for us, at this time it's disturbing, in some form Isaiah assures us who are saved that we're going to get a glimpse of the suffering in hell. A picture of it, a vision, a glimpse. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. A couple of years ago, Eric and Mary Yurkus, who they'd never received a what they felt was a satisfactory explanation of Isaiah 66, called and asked. And they said, "Does this mean what I think it means?" Yeah, it means what you think it means. And, and their immediate response was, well, "What purpose will that serve?" You know. What, what would that do for us in heaven, standing before Christ? And I replied, our awareness or alertness, if you want to call that, to the suffering in hell will function as a reminder to the elect of exactly what we were saved from. It will enhance worship of Christ immensely. Don't know what the form is going to be, what the extent of it's going to be, but we're going to get a glimpse of what the Savior saved us from. That would only make sense. How much would you how would you be able to understand in heaven if you didn't have some idea of what Christ on the cross spared us from? That's salvation according to Jesus. Does it provide the impression, does it to you? Does it give you the impression that that Jesus came to save us from poor self esteem? no a low credit score boy the superficial things that you hear Uh, the mental anguish of being passed over for a job promotion in the great scheme of things do we need to be spared from any of that I can handle that I can't handle Isaiah 66 I'm going to turn to Christ I already have I encourage you to as well Um, Did Jesus come merely so that we could be fulfilled with with happiness and, and vain world pursuits without any striving? No, not hardly. Not hardly. Jesus came to die for our sins, to spare us from the wrath that is to come. Bottom line. This is why he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And do it while the kingdom is still open, folks. Please. Please. The door... As I close, obviously it's Jesus. Probably about that wide. One man, the width of one man. Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. What then is the difference between those who enter and those who fail to enter? It seems to be those who fail to enter are very passive in their relationship to him. Very passive they take salvation for granted they don't agonize about the kingdom for as it seemed to them as it did for the jews in the end we're all just going to get in meanwhile those who have actually entered strived to enter jesus says strive to enter through the narrow door for many i tell you will seek to enter and will not be able pray.